Today is going to be fast and furious. I'm going to dump a lot of information on your brains. And I'm preaching next week, too. So at this, the end of this week, I'm just going to cut it off and start again next week. And we're just going to keep going. So first of all, let's talk about what we, you know, what's been going on up to this point, right? We now have Noah. The flood is getting ready to start, Genesis chapter 7. But before that... We've talked about this idea of the sons of God and the daughters of men and them creating these hybrids, right? And one of the things it says about Noah is that he was upright and pure in his generation. And when you look at the Hebrew, one of the things that we suspect is one of the reasons he was pure and upright is that his line was not corrupted with these hybrid genes. Like, he didn't have people in his line that had been involved in this great sin that God didn't want to have. Now, this view of the scripture is called the angel view. And there's another view. The one that's primarily taught today is called the Sethite view. Until 500 AD is when it got popularized. 300 AD, a guy named Josephus Africanus was being derided and ridiculed about this angel view. It was like, how can you believe that? That there were like angels and humans having children and all this stuff. So he came up with this view that said that the sons of Seth were pure, and the sons of Cain were impure, and when the sons of Seth and the sons of Cain got together, that was the big sin that God destroyed the entire world over, except that none of the sons of Seth survived either, and all men are sinful. So there's a lot of things about it that don't make sense, but it didn't get popularized until St. Augustine, he like that theory, and he popularized it because of his reputation and his influence in the church, it became the predominant view. The Catholic Church, later when the Protestant Reformation happened, they just kind of brought it in. But before 300 AD, the entire church and the Jewish nations from the first temple, the second temple, all through, they all believed the, the view that we're teaching today. So you have to remember, there's different doctrines that get put out and become standard doctrine in our churches that aren't historical. They aren't what the first church, first century church believed and the Jews before them. So we just want to make sure that we're studying what the scripture actually says and then looking at what our forefathers have passed down to us, just like Paul said when he told them about the resurrection, he said, I'm passing on what I received to you. And that's, we have to remember those kinds of things. So we had all that going on. So we have these hybrids and this sin where violence is taking over the entire world and God's going to judge that world. It's a big deal. And there was a lot of corruption going on at that point. And do you guys remember we mentioned the book of Jasher? Anybody heard of that book before? So it's, in, it's, it's referenced a couple times in the Old Testament. Joshua says, aren't these things written in the book of Jasher? And with David, there's another time when it says, well, these things are written in the book of Jasher. We're like, well, what's the book of Jasher? Well, it turns out we have it. We have a copy of it. It's about as old as the uh, first five books of the Bible, 3000 BC. And it's quoted in the scriptures, also in the New Testament, when Paul mentions a couple of the names of the sorcerers in Egypt that opposed Moses, they're not in the Bible. They're in the book of Jasher. So Paul was quoting from it. All the Jewish, they used it as a history book. 
We don't believe it's inspired, but we do believe it's a history book, and it's actually pretty accurate. But what it does is it goes through and it expands all the stuff around the flood. It gives all this other information about what happened and the interactions between Noah and the people on the earth, and it's a very interesting read. But like I said, we don't consider it to be inspired scripture. But it said that Moses, in the Bible that we, that in our scripture that we trust, we always say that Moses preached for 120 years. How many people have heard that? That Noah preached for 120 years while he was building the ark to try to get people to repent. It doesn't actually say that. It calls him a preacher of righteousness, so we can infer. But it doesn't say that he actually preached. And there's, a, there's some other interesting things that we have to get into related to that. But in the book of Jasher, it also adds Methuselah, that him and Methuselah both preached. So there was this underlying assumption from a historical reference that he actually did preach, but when you carefully look at the scripture that we have, it doesn't actually say he did that. Just interesting. But the Bible itself, we trust it. We love it. We believe it's the inspired word of God. We believe that it's accurate and it's true. We believe when historical narrative is historical narrative. There's poetry in there. There's prophecy in there. There's all these different things that are in the scripture, and you interpret them based on the kind of literature that they are. So we have, in this case, the flood of Noah is one of those things that is hard for a lot of Christians to take literally and believe because the entire world is telling them it's a myth. And there's a bunch of other myths, and it's just another one of those. And I ask people, you can believe in the literal incarnation of God into Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Christ, you can, but you can't believe that God created a worldwide flood. That's interesting. Why is one harder than the other or less hard than, you know, it's kind of like, that's pretty crazy stuff. The thing that we will accept no matter what, and other things in the same scripture that Jesus himself referenced and believed were true, but we don't necessarily believe them. This is called apologetics. This is called the Bible being true from verse 1-1 all the way to the end in Revelation. And that's what we're talking about today. So we have a bunch of questions that we have to deal with. First of all, the Bible's not a book of science, right? That's not the purpose of the book, right. is, to, is to give us scientific truth, right? What we call science and the scientific method, it's a relatively recent invention of mankind in the way that we look at the world in terms of formalizing it and doing observation and theories and all this kind of stuff. However, we can look at the world around us and we can look at the things in the Bible and if what the Bible says is true, then there ought to be evidence in the world around us. The world that God created should line up with what his scripture tells us, right? That's what we're, that's what we're looking at. God's primary purpose in the scripture was what? Anybody? Reveal himself. Christ. Christ is all through the scripture. That's the purpose of the scripture. It teaches us about Christ and about salvation, about our purpose, about what God was doing in the world, why it's, why it's all here. Faith and reason are not opposed. There are lots of people who try to say that, you know, if you are a Christian, you should keep your mind out of things related to science, for example, because this is about faith, and we're, we're about reason. That's what they'll say. 
but most of our greatest scientists historically were all Christians. And the reason that they studied science was because they said, oh, the universe was created by God, who's intelligent, and he created it with an order. He created it with rules. He created it with all these things. Therefore, since it's not arbitrary, meaning there's not some capricious God up there like Zeus with a lightning bolt, and every once in a while he just decides to wipe out a city, that's arbitrary. There's no rhyme or reason. They said God isn't arbitrary. Therefore, the universe can be studied. We can study it because it does make sense. It has logical things that go together. You can discover mathematical principles. You can look at laws of gravity and motion and all these things. Why? Because God made them. If it was arbitrary and God just did whatever God decided to do one day to the next, is the sun going to come up tomorrow? We'd be going, I don't know. Maybe. Hope so. I like it. It'd be cool if it did, but I don't know. But that's not the universe that God gave us. So that's why scientists have studied the world around us in the first place. The data is the data. There's all this data that you can look at in the world and study scientifically. The data doesn't change, only our interpretation of the data, and more importantly, the lens that we bring with us to look at the data. For example, geology and hydrophysics is a big deal related to this topic, the, the, the historicity of the flood. The, the gentleman who was, his principles of geology and geological study are still taught today in beginning geology courses. That's what all geology uh, students are taught on how you approach the field. Well, he studied everything in the, with the worldview that the flood was real because he was a Christian. And he later became a bishop in the Catholic Church when he was an older gentleman. So even as late as the 1800s, most geologists approached geology and they were looked at it based on the flood. And then through Charles Lyell and some other geologists and what's called the uniformitarianism model, say that three times fast, it changed. The thought process changed. And then they started coming up with reasons why the worldwide flood just could not be possible. So for the last 150 years, the prevailing view is, no, there were some local floods in, in the history of the world, but there was no big flood. Until in 1951, two Christians, one who was a hydrologic engineer and the other one was a theology doctor, Whitcomb and Morris, wrote a book called The Genesis Flood. And it sparked the resurgence of creationist, full earth, real worldwide flood from a scientific perspective that's been going on ever since that time. And there are a ton of very qualified scientists doing a lot of research. And these two books right here, well, this is, one this is two volumes of the same book. Called Earth's Catastrophic Past by Dr. Andrew Snelling, who's a biologist, and he's an Australian. This has anything you want to know about science related to flood geology and all, you know, mostly geology and the, and the world that we see around us. And it's just chock full of references and papers and information that they, they have meticulously researched. So it's a really good resource if you're interested in, in getting deeper, because this is a rabbit hole. 
Just like the thing we were talking about before with angels and the sons of God, it's a rabbit hole. I mean, Joel puts up on the screen pictures of giants. It's a rabbit hole. There's a lot of rabbit holes. This is a huge rabbit hole. I don't care if you want to get into it from astronomy or biology or physics, geology, any of it. There is a ton of information. You can spend all your time in that world, which I don't recommend. I recommend that you take care of your families and you love Jesus and not get down these rabbit holes for your whole life. That's what I recommend, okay? <clears throat> so let's talk about ancient history. So we believe that, as we'll get into later, at the Tower of Babel, after the flood, God spread everyone around the world and changed their languages around, like a miraculous, supernatural happening and that explains the dispersion of people all over the planet after the flood. Well, I look at it this way. We already know from Genesis that the people before the flood had a lot of technological advances. They were working with iron and bronze and different things, and they had a lot of knowledge. We know that all the old temples around the world, they all line up from an astronomical perspective, and they point at various constellations. And these, they were all calendar makers, these people had a lot of knowledge about the heavens. They understood the movement of things in the sky. And they built temples that reflected that. But where did all that knowledge come from? So one theory is, is that everyone just invented it independently of each other. It doesn't matter if you're in Peru. It doesn't matter if you're in Egypt, China, Tibet, Mongolia, all of them. It doesn't matter. They all invented it all independently of each other which is, seems unlikely. What, what, what about a bunch of people that came and their forebears were living hundreds of years and they understood these things and then all of that information was taken and dispersed with them. And then they took that knowledge that those people had and they used it to build these things as their religions and their minds got more corrupted over time because they didn't stick with what they had learned about God. Mostly they went off in their own, their own way. So what would I expect to find in that case? I would expect to find myths and legends about floods all over the world. Do I? Yes, I do. Thousands of them. The Sumerian one almost is exactly the same as Noah's flood. A righteous man picked by the gods to save his family and the animals of the world in an ark. Right? This is Sumerian. This is from 12 tablets written in cuneiform that were found in the 1800s. There's, there's one in Peru. Um, this one's kind of funny because the God comes to a couple and he says, I'm going to save you from this coming flood that I'm going to bring. And he seals them inside of a cypress tree and he gives each one of them one ear of maize. That's what you get to eat. And then he sealed them in and the flood came. But people didn't die. He turned them all into fish. So all the people in the world have been turned into fish. So these guys, he opens the tree, they come out of the tree, and then he says, great, populate the world. First thing they did was go fishing. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 no. You, no, you can't do that. Now you're turning them into dogs. So the world had two dogs and a bunch of fish. So we know that one isn't true because here we are. <laughs> the rainbow is a theme that appears more than once. 
but most of them agree in a righteous man who saves his family through the flood. Now, the Norse one, the Vikings, that one's pretty, that one's rough compared to the rest because the world wasn't flooded with water, it was flooded with blood, the blood of a frost giant that Odin killed, and, and it wiped everything out. But they're all over the place. It's, it's crazy how many of them there are. And it doesn't matter where these societies sprung up. And the anthropologists don't understand because it's like, these people had no contact with each other forever. How do they, you know, how do they, well, your, your model doesn't work. Sorry, buddy. So we have some problems that we need to solve, we need to address. And these are questions that people ask when, somebody's, when, they, when they come to you. And I've had somebody ask me this question, point blank. You actually believe that God saved all the animals in a boat and everyone else died? You really believe that? Really? And you have to look at them and go, yes, I do. But you feel guilty almost. It's like they're making me look stupid, right? You feel like, this person's attacking me and saying I'm an idiot. I'm not an idiot. I, you know, I, I actually went to school and learned some things. But me, personally, I'm not a scientist. I mean, I have a degree in computer science, but that's more of a, you know, workman, votech, get stuff done. It isn't doing research. But I can read just like everybody else and all of you. We have lots of information available to us. So here's some of these questions. How could you fit all those animals in the ark? How many animals did you have to fit in there anyway? How many species? Talk about all that. How do you feed them? How do you care for them? How could this big boat survive something like a flood that lasted for over a year? Right? It wasn't 40 days and 40 nights. It was 371 days from him getting in the ark to getting off the ark. There's a lot going on there. Is there enough water on the earth to cover all the high mountains to a depth of 15 cubits, right? And there's various reasons why secular geologists say, no way, and creationist geologists say, oh yeah, we can do that. So we'll talk about that. What about the age of the fossil record, the geologic columns? What about petrified forests? How do those get made? Oil and coal formation. Those are all things that you have to answer because they will be arguments that are brought up to say your idea is not true. Ice ages. We have ice ages? How many have we had? What caused them? What are they? Why, why, do they, why were they there in the first place? You have flooding, you have water everywhere, the changing climate. We're going to talk about things like how you have Literally millions upon millions of mammoths in Siberia that were all frozen and still have subtropical plants in their stomachs and in their mouths. What? How does that even happen? What is going on there? How many people were there in the judgment of the flood? How many people think there weren't that many people? Right? Your first thought. Like, we have these patriarchs, and they had a few kids. Couldn't have been that many people. We're going to talk about that. And how could all the present peoples on the earth come from Shem, Ham, and Japheth and Noah, Noah's sons? 
that we have going on today, right? So these are all things that we would talk about, the age of things. And that's why I have two weeks instead of one. Because otherwise, I'd be talking like an auctioneer right now, and <laughs> you guys would all fall asleep, and, and at the end I would just be like, ah, I'm done. Okay. So Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. The Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. We mentioned that righteousness word and the purity of Noah's line. And what, what was the purpose of the enemy right here in trying to corrupt everyone through this sons of God and the daughters of men thing? What is the purpose of getting them to worship the creation and practice sorcery and worship them as opposed to God? What were they doing? Well, they were trying to stop the line of Christ. They were trying to destroy God's ability to redeem this creation of man that he had made that they didn't understand. And when Christ came, what does it say? The angels long to look into these things. They're all standing up there going, we don't know what God's doing right now. We don't understand. We didn't understand why he created people in the first place. And we don't understand about this whole incarnation thing. And then we don't understand about this resurrection thing. God did not share all that information with them. And the scripture tells us that they didn't understand because they were longing to look into it and longing to understand what was happening. So we know that from scripture. So Noah is getting into the ark, right? So what did the world look like back then? Before the flood. What was it? Was it different? Was it the same as what we have right now? Geologists will tell us in modern geology the phrase is, the present is the key to the past. So you look at what is going on around you right now, and you extrapolate that back into the past, and that is how you explain the past. But what we say is, that doesn't work. The past is the key to now. You have to know what happened in the past so you can explain what you see today. And there's evidence all over the world of giant catastrophes that aren't happening today like fossil formation, coal bed formation, oil. That stuff isn't happening today. So how did it happen in the past? Because if we look at it today, we wouldn't even have fossil fuels. We'd have very little, if, if any, if what is happening today is what was happening back then. Right? So there's a lot of things that just don't fit that model. So in Genesis 2.5, it tells us that a garden, uh, a mist rose up over the garden and watered all the plants. Rain is not mentioned in the Bible until the flood. Does that mean, as some Christian scholars have said, that it did not rain before the flood? You, we can't definitively say that. Okay? The Bible doesn't actually say it didn't rain. It just says that water came up from the ground and watered things. So that's one uh, proposition is that it didn't rain. No one had seen rain before the flood. How many people in your grade school and junior high geography courses heard about a thing called Pangea? You want to put that up on the screen? There you go, Pangea. What's Pangea? Pangea is based on the theory of plate tectonics, which means that all of the continents of the world are big plates, and they're floating around like lilies on a pond over our magma core, and they move. And slamming into each other creates mountains, and coming apart creates valleys. But it happens, according to that 
conventional wisdom really, really slow. But they say that when you looked at all, like this guy was looking at a map and he saw Africa and he saw, you know, South America and North America and Europe. And he was like, you know what? If you like push all these together, they fit like a jigsaw puzzle. Well, that's crazy. How'd that happen? And so plate tectonics was born in the late 50s. And the idea was is that there was one continent. So this is the conventional wisdom of all geologists right now. This happened. This was 250 million years ago in the Permian era, right? It says that on the bottom of the, of the uh, screen. So what does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says that God created the dry land and brought the waters all into one place. Kind of sounds like all the land was in one place and all the waters was in another place. Like maybe this was real. Like the Bible agrees with that, that there was one supercontinent at one point when God created in the first place. And so that's something that creation scientists as well as everyone else they agree with each other. Yeah, there probably was one continent like that. And the climate was milder. And the mountains that we see today, like the Himalaya Mountains and the Andes Mountains, these giant mountain chains, did not exist. There were mountains, but they weren't big, giant. Because we know from geology, these mountains were created from very large catastrophic processes. When God created the world, he didn't create it with large catastrophic processes. But when you think in the Garden of Eden, he created all these trees, right? And they were, they were for food. How many tree rings did the trees have? That's right. So God could have made trees with tree rings if he wanted to. Right? If you cut down one of those trees, it could have had tree rings. So that's called the idea of apparent age. And it's debated in Christian circles. Apparent age says that when God created the universe and we see distant stars that are millions of light years away, but we can see the light from them, which conventionally it would, it would say that if God didn't do something else, then that light takes millions of years to get to me. So how'd that light get here? So the idea was postulated, well, God created the light in transit. But there's a problem with that. Because if God created that light in transit, that light is really an illusion. The thing it's showing us isn't really there. You're almost seeing a lie. And if God created a tree instantaneously and it had tree rings so that when we looked at it, we would see that it was multiple years and generations old, is that true or false? That's right. It depends on if you believe tree rings give you a real, they give you age, as opposed to some other data. They can be used for some of that, but really what they're giving you is the amount of growth and the conditions of the tree. But the point is, is that there's other theories that people have come up with about God stretching, like it says in the Bible, he stretched the universe out like a garment, right? He did these things. 
So what happened when he did that? Well, based on Einstein's theory of relativity, when you stretch out something like that on the cosmic scale, the things at the edges age way faster than the things inside relative to each other. So even though the core could be you know, 5,000 years old, the edges could be billions of years old. And it works out mathematically. Again, this is crazy stuff, and there's a bunch of scientists who study it, and I'm not going to go into all those details. But, so we have Pangea. Genesis 1-2, the earth was formless and without void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then Genesis 1-9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. So there's a consistency there. So we also know, pre-flood, pre people lived a long time. Correct? Hundreds of years. How'd that happen? Well, there's been many theories about that as well. One of the theories that has come up is called the canopy theory. And the canopy theory says, because God said that he had took the firmament and he separated the waters above from the waters below, that there was a canopy, a vapor canopy, or a crystalline canopy, or an ice canopy, there's been a number of different theories related to this, around the globe, and it had a number of effects. One of the main effects is that it would have created a uniform climate around the world, and it also would have protected the world from a lot, of, lot more harmful radiation than, it's, than we're protected from today, and all of those things combined would also possibly increase the atmospheric pressure, and all of those things combined would cause people to live a lot longer than we do today. And animals would be bigger, and all these kinds of things. And the main reason for coming up with the canopy idea was they were trying to explain why, how could it rain for 40 days and 40 nights, and is there enough water to do that? So the idea was canopy would give us that water, especially if it didn't ever rain. So you have the waters below and the fountains of the great deep. Like we have, where do we get our water in Colorado Springs? We get it from mountains, right? If you go out east, you get it from aquifers. What are those? Giant underground rock formations that are full of water. Most places in the interior of any continent get their water from aquifers, right? So there's water under the ground. It also turns out, based on a couple of theories, and they recently found this out, way down in the core of the earth, in one of the magma layer, above the magma layer, there's a whole layer called, that has, has a substance called olivine, and this stuff gets pushed out sometimes. And it turns out that there is a specific kind of a thing called a, I have it written down here somewhere, it's got a weird, weird name, name for a scientist, but basically it gets created through olivine and intense pressures and whatever, but it can hold up to 30% of its own weight in water. So he proposed this, it was a theory, because no one had ever seen this stuff. And then they found it, and it had water, but it was non-liquid water, it was hydroxide ions. And they were like, so what you're telling me is there is a bunch of, a layer of water inside of the core of the earth. It's like, really? Huh. Fountains of the deep, maybe, you know. We don't get a lot of detail in what the scripture tells us, but you have to use your imagination on what the fountains of the deep really means. But we'll get into that. So we have this vapor canopy. Other planets have vapor canopies, right? Venus, Neptune. Jupiter, 
the, you know, the gas giants, they have vapor canopies. So it's not unheard of that a planet would have this. But other creation scientists no longer believe that it's viable to explain a few things. One of the reasons is, is that if the vapor camp canopy is thick enough that you could rain for 40 days and 40 nights, then it would be too hot on the Earth, and there would be too much oxygen. And when you get oxygen levels up to 35%, it becomes volatile. 40% oxygen, it's dangerous. And creatures like us get what's called hyperoxia, and it can damage you. So if you lower the width of that canopy down to where the oxygen levels and the temperature levels and stuff are good, there's not enough water there to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. But, again, these are theories. And people are still studying them, and there's still a lot of proponents of the canopy theory. I'm not saying it's wrong. It still has a lot of things to recommend it. But scientists have gone in another direction, a bunch of other Christian scientists, and we're going to get into that. What about dinosaurs? Dinosaurs on the ark? Like what? An apatosaurus? You know, a 100-ton dinosaur? Well, it turns out most dinosaurs were smaller than a dog. Only a few dinosaurs are huge like that. So, yes, there were dinosaurs on the ark. Did they live longer than, who knows? They could have died out. Do we have extinct animals today? Yes, we do. Do animals get extinct over time? Yes, they do. God didn't promise that the animal that were on the ark would live for all time. He just had Noah preserve them. So don't make assumptions about what was and wasn't on the ark based on that, that kind of a thing. So in Genesis 7-2, he says, You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, male and female, two each of the animals that are unclean, a male and his female, also seven each of the birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of the earth. Species. That word's species. Well, that's not the Hebrew word. Translated species in English. It actually means genera or family. When you look at how they classify animals, species is at the lower layer. Family is at a higher layer. How many species of, or how many races of humans are there? Which would be genera or family. One. There's one. The differentiate differences between, say, me and my brother Lee right here, we are different species. What does that mean? That means that our ancestors adapted to their environment that they were living in. And it accounts for skin color, eye color, height, weight, all these different things that are my ancestors versus Lee's ancestors versus Ezra's ancestors versus anybody's ancestors. There's only one human race. There are not multiple races. That is not true in any sense of the word. There are some different speciation, speciation of, of humans. So that's why there was one family on the ark. They didn't have to make sure that they collected, you know, Chinese descent and Asian descent, or any Asian descent and, you know, Hisp Hispanic descent and African American descent or African descent. They didn't have to do that because all of the genetic material was already contained in their bodies. Okay? Then he says, For after seven more days I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will destroy 
from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. And he was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. So Noah with his sons, his wife, his sons' wives went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are unclean, of birds, of everything that creeps on the earth, two by two they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass that after seven days, so they went in the ark and then they sit there for seven days. The waters of the flood were on the earth. And in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. So what we're going to talk about is, I talked a little bit about the uniformitarian model, which basically says the universe is 13 to 15 billion years old. The earth is four and a half billion years old. Everything that we see on the earth today can be explained through the processes that we see today. And all the mountains, everything that, that's around, all of it is through slow action. The Grand Canyon was carved by the Colorado River. Slow action over time. That's the model. That's what they're presenting. So plate tectonics, we talked about that. The plates hitting each other, right, and doing things. And slowly, over the course of millions and millions and millions of years, the Himalayan mountains spring up because there's two plates slowly moving together. And we're talking like sub-inches a year and less, tiny amounts of space that these things are bringing together. So what's the other model? What's the flood model? The flood model is called catastrophic plate tectonics. And this is God breaking up the fountains of the deep. What are the fountains of the deep? What are they made of? Are they water? Some. What else are they? Lava. Those are fountains of the deep. So what God did is he caused a bunch of volcanic explosions all around the world on the seafloors and above. Imagine a trench in the ocean. We have trenches in the ocean. How big are they? Marianas Trench? It's really, really deep. It's like way deeper than anything on the surface. Way deeper than any mountains on the surface. It's also like 12,000 miles long. So imagine a 12 to 20,000 mile trench under the ocean starting to break apart and magma starts coming up from the mantle and hits the seawater and it superheats it and it creates jets of volcanic material and water that shoot into the atmosphere miles high. That's what would happen. We see small versions of this when volcanoes explode. When Mount St. Helens exploded in 1980, it changed the temperature of the Earth by close to a half a degree. One small volcanic explosion. Right? So you have all this stuff happening, and what happens when lava hits water and the first, the superheated stuff goes away, and then the rest of it starts to harden. And seafloors get raised. That happens today all the time. There's new seafloor being made every single day around volcanic activity in the deepest parts of the ocean. But what we're talking about is 5,000 feet, 10,000 feet, within a matter of weeks. And all that water rushes over the land. Right? So the first layers of everything that are on the land are going to be the ocean sediment with all the sea creatures in the ocean sediment put out as mud across the, across the land, and then all the plants just get wiped out. Another thing about Mount St. Helens. Hey, uh, Manny, would you put up the Quake Lake? 
There. Go back. There. What is that? This is Spirit Lake. Can you tell what's on that, what, what that is on there, on the top of the lake? Logs. Those are logs. There's millions, millions of trees. 35 years later, after that explosion, there's millions of logs still floating on that lake. But now there's only one kind of log floating on that lake. Why is that? Well, the other logs, the other types of trees, they sank. Their root balls got filled with water, and they're heavier than the rest of the tree. So they went like this, and then they sank to the bottom, and they stuck there, and then more mud came in, and then the other next kind of tree did the same thing, and so you get layers of trees that look like they grew in the bottom of that lake. These trees are all Douglas firs, and they have a resin in them, and that means that they're floating for longer. But then none of the trees have bark on them. All the bark got whittled away by the, ocean of, uh, the motion of them just moving, and the bark went to the bottom of the lake, and five years after the, or after the volcano exploded, there was a layer of peat moss, or peat, three feet thick. That's how coals formed. So what it needs is another volcanic activity to come in and bury it, and that's how coal beds were created. And that's why when you look at coal beds, you see trees and roots that are all petrified into coal. That's how it happens. When that mountain exploded, all the superheated volcanic ash went into the lake and raised the level 200 feet. And there was what was called a pyroclastic scouring effect. The water went out of the north side of the lake, 650 feet onto the sides of the mountains, and spun all the way around and took all those trees and dumped them in the lake. And right, if you go walk around, there's a scour pattern all the way around the top of that lake. This all happened instantaneously, like a day. That was the first thing that happened was the lake got destroyed. This is on May 18th, 1980, is when this happened. It's given us a lot of information about how catastrophic processes work. It's like a little laboratory that we've gotten to go look at, and I'll talk about more of some of the other things. What about the fact that we have fossils all over the world, everywhere, on top of the highest mountain peaks, in the lowest valleys? There's fossils of sea creatures everywhere. The explanation is, is that, well, at some point, that land was under the water. Great. We can all agree on that. That makes perfect sense. The issue is, is that, did that happen all at once? And then when these, during the, the year of the flood, these plates are moving super fast, slamming into each other and creating the mountain ranges? So when Noah's floating along the top, and it says that after 150 days, the, the, uh, the water started to go back down, and then after another you know, few months, the waters were receding, and then the tops of the high mountains started to be shown. We don't believe that those were the same mountains that were there before the flood. Those are all brand new mountain ranges, and they were a lot bigger than the old ones. And we also have the parts of the continent not being in the same places anymore. That's what we're talking about, the volcanic activity, and even when we talk a little bit more about Mount St. Helens, you'll see how ridiculously powerful all of this is. So we talked about fossils. You know there's a fossil called coprolite. Anybody know what that is? Everybody heard of it? It's fish dung. Fish feces. Coprolite is fish feces. There's a lot of coprolite that that paleontologists have found. 
Do you know that a copper light has to be put under extreme pressure and buried within 24 hours of the fish using the facilities, so to speak? How does that happen? How are fossils made? When an animal dies today, what happens? Decomposes, torn up by other animals, bacteria, insects. There's nothing left. And the bones that lay there on the ground when you're walking out in the woods and you see a deer carcass that's been there for 15, 20 years, it's not rock, it's bone, correct? How many people have ever seen bones on the, out in the woods, right? They're not rock. Why? There's seven ways fossils have been created, can be created through different processes, and so they all have names, whether stuff is replaced by certain minerals or crystallized or whatever. But every single one of those need very specific conditions to happen. And if you go to Moab and you're out there in the Badlands and you're riding your, your mountain bike and looking around and you find that fossil fossilization of an entire school of fish right there in front of your face, how did that happen? Well, they got buried really fast. And what happens when it gets buried really fast with all this mud, there's no oxygen. There's no oxygen, it can't decay. And so the minerals leach through the body's pores leave the bones behind, which are turned into crystal. It's called replacement. And then you have a fossil. And the only way you get these fossils is through a process of being buried quickly, tons of pressure. It doesn't happen slowly over time. Today, in the world today, there's hardly any fossilization going on at all, unless there's a disaster. Then you can get some fossilization, right? All right, we're going to stop here for today. We're going to continue next week. We're going to talk a lot more about the catastrophic plate tectonics and flooding. We're going to talk about flooding. We're going to talk about all the evidence for flooding that's on the Earth, what we see, where we see it, all that stuff, right? And then we're going to talk about Noah. We're going to talk about the animals on the ark. We're going to talk about details of that, how big was the, how many animals could fit on the ark, you know, how big was the ark, really, that kind of stuff. And then um, we're going to talk about what Jesus says about Noah. We're going to talk about what Peter says about Noah. We're going to talk about the judgment itself. And that's when we're going to get into how many people were on the earth. And why God tells us it's going to be that way again. He's not going to destroy us by water, but it is going to be that way again. The judgment is going to happen. And we... These are not, this is not a joke, right? And this isn't fantasy. This is what Jesus himself said, as in the days of Noah, it will be in the end times. Okay? So we'll get into all of that as well. So if you have any questions about any of this stuff, write them down, email them, whatever. And I'll try to make some time to answer any of them next week. Or you can get a hold of me this week and, you know, tell me I'm an idiot or whatever you want to do. That's fine. And we will discuss it like adults. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. God, I'm just amazed by the world that you've given us. I'm amazed by the things that we can find, the beauty that we can see, and the power of these forces that you've encoded into the universe around us. We are insignificant by comparison, Lord. 
one tsunami comes into an area and it's wrecked and we can't do anything about it, Lord, except just ask for your mercy. God, I pray for our time together today and I pray that you would help us to realize and understand that the Bible is true, we can trust it, and we don't understand everything and we can't answer all the questions, Lord, but there's a lot of evidence that says that what you say happened, Lord, and we, we want to understand that and help it bolster our faith, God, because we know your word is true, but we want to believe all of it. We want to believe every word and we don't want to have to jump through hoops to figure out an alternative meaning, Lord. You gave it to us and you wrote it down for us. Help us to understand it. Father, I just pray for the rest of our time together. I pray um, as we pray together and take communion, Lord, and just share with each other that you would honor and glorify yourself through that process. In Jesus' name, amen.